Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassink, and I'm the medical director of the Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight at the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I recently sat down with my friend and colleague, Chris Bowling, who is a practicing pediatrician in Kentucky, to talk about how we address picky eating with families. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, hi, Sandy. Thanks a lot for sitting down with me today to talk about some of these challenging patients that you and I see. Um, You know, we just don't get the opportunity, as, as you've said, to really sit down and talk with colleagues like we used to. So I really appreciate time like this. You know, one of the big challenges um, for those of us who do general pediatrics is the challenge of picky eaters. Um, I cannot tell you how much time I spend with my families talking about nutrition, talking about picky eating. Um, It just is something that is front and center for them all the time. You know, and I think parents just want their kids to be healthy and they want them uh, to, to grow appropriately, but they just find eating to be so stressful. Um, stressful about getting adequate nutrition. And, and, you know, I think providing nutrition is one of those things that's just absolutely hardwired into us as caregivers. Well, you know, Chris, I always say to my families that, you know, the first things you do with your new little baby, you love them, you hug them, you feed them, you change them. And so feeding becomes, uh, people get laser focused on feeding right from the get-go. And I think uh, I haven't met any parents who don't want to see that growth chart and a healthy growing baby. So uh, I think parents are just confused too sometimes when the child starts to get picky, they don't always know exactly what to do about it. They don't, you know, and there's so much information out there and so many opinions that it really is kind of stressful for them. You know, I thought I wanted to ask you about a couple of kids who came across uh, in our office recently, uh, and I wanted to bounce some ideas off if that would be okay. Yeah, that, that would be good. I'd love to hear about them. So the first one is a little guy named Griffin, and he is a three-year-old, sort of a classic three-nager, if you know what I mean, all attitude. You just can be very verbal, but pushing every button he can with his parents. You know, he was one of those kids, great eater until about 18 months, and then just completely shut things down on them. Um, throws tantrums over food, goes on hunger strikes, walks away from meals, the whole nine yards. You know, being as smart as a whip and as verbal as can be, he even recently started announcing to his family at dinner times um, with both hands flailing in the air, no green. Um, you know, I know it's really uh, tough on them too because he used to be such a good eater, but now things seem to really be going downhill. Um, you know, that and compounding his parents' worry was that his percentiles have slipped a little bit his weight percentile went from 80th to 40th percentile, and his height's gone down a little bit, not quite as much, from 75th to 60th percentile. So, Chris, I'm just sitting here um, imagining what that dinner time must look like for those parents and must feel like for those parents, especially if his weight's starting to go down and now they're concerned that maybe he isn't getting enough food. Um, do you know what his BMI's done? Yeah, so his BMI is actually still staying in the normal range. We did an interesting little study with Callie Brown, who's at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, um, in our office, looking at parents' perception of kids' weight. And he's one of our classic kids 
who is really a normal weight child, but the parents would look at him, a lot of parents would look at him and say, oh gosh, he's really slender. And really forgetting that that's a really normal looking growth pattern for a lot of kids and a lot of three-year-olds. So his BMI is still normal and well within the normal range, even though his weight percentile and height percentile have slipped a little bit. Well, that's certainly reassuring for me, but I get the feeling it's not quite as reassuring for the parents and that they really have some behaviors here that are problematic for them. What's the thing you think they're most concerned about in this whole behavioral repertoire that Griffin's developed? You know, I think they are really a regimented sort of family. They like things to be controlled and they really get a little bit concerned at how chaotic meal times have become. You know, the, the tantruming really throws them off. Uh, they also get really upset because instead of eating his food, Griffin tends to just play with his food. They get right. thrown all over the kitchen and he really, you know, sticks things in his ear and in his nose. And that <laughs> seems to really bother them a lot. I've tried to tell them that some of that is normal experimentation and working with textures. You know, um, I just chuckling a little here because I have a friend who uh, solved her three-year-old uh, throwing the food off the high chair problem by getting a dog and said uh, she turned her back and all of a sudden all the food on the floor was gone. Um, so I think all parents have a little frustration with this phase. And it sounds like, you know, if the parents come home and they're kind of stressed and they're tired to have a three-year-old, you know, um, patting uh, mashed potatoes into his hair and um, pushing the peas off the edge of the high chair, uh, it certainly is frustrating. Um, you know, one of the things that we've tried in the past is to set up the high chair while the parents are getting the meal ready and give him maybe some of the food that you might be going to serve or a little appetizer and let him do some playing around um, before dinner, get some of it going um, out of the system, and then try to sit down again as a family around the table with Griffin in his high chair uh, when he can then watch the parents eat and do some modeling of, of the eating. And certainly an oil cloth under the high chair instead of the dog also works to help with the messiness that parents find so frustrating. You know, I think those are great ideas. And I really agree with you, you know, almost building in that time for kids to play with their food. It's something that is really difficult at times for them to get a grasp on, but I think it's really important you know, I think it helps for parents to realize that this is really a process. You don't solve toddler eating like an adult in one day. This is a whole process that you start with exploration. You start with tasting and touching and smelling. You start actually with watching how your parents eat and how they enjoy their food. And I think that uh, with a harried and frazzled parent, sometimes um, that modeling of just enjoying a meal and talking about themselves, how the food tastes and, and feels and smells can be a powerful um, incentive for the kid to kind of relax and just uh, enjoy uh, being with his parents and talking about enjoying food. So um, I think all of that goes into a, a happy family mealtime. You know, I couldn't agree more. I just feel like the mealtime should be this good sort of family time. And I think a lot of parents are looking for that. And then it turns into this extremely stressful occurrence. You know, I'm not sure what your thoughts are. I've had a discussion with the dietitian in our office. You know, the current rage that you see on the internet is about um, 
baby led weaning, which you know, it seems like there's some good lessons and some things. I mean, obviously I get very concerned about the choking issues on that, but there does seem like there's some good stuff in there in terms of letting kids explore textures, letting them mouth things, letting them do some self-feeding under close supervision, clearly, but, and letting them sort of self-regulate. I think that's an important piece as well. Chris, don't you think this is just another way of um, helping parents get down to the point of responsive feeding and watching your child? Um, we know we know that we don't want to start the baby on uh, uh, complementary foods till six months, and we know we start with pureed foods. And just watching the baby and how they uh, they explore, even with their tongue, when you're putting the spoon in their mouth, and then what foods they like and don't like, and you know how many times, uh, maybe 15 times, you'll try that food uh, to, to get the baby to get over the novelty factor. And then with finger foods, I think the uh, parents need to realize that you can um, use a variety of foods for finger foods, and you're not stuck with little crackers or puff balls, and that they should really um, be helping uh, facilitate the child's exploration of a whole variety of foods. And, you know, their job is to provide healthy food in the right portions and in the right consistency for the child to eat it. But the child's job is really to explore it and to respond to their own hunger cues. And I think getting back into that uh, dynamic of responsive feeding is really important because I think it makes um, that kind of communication over food very positive instead of some of the communication we get around food, which is um, focused on, um, you know, um, a more work-like approach to food. You know, I, I think you're a fan like I am of some of Ellen Satter's work in Child of Mine. It's been around for a while. And I, you know, the, the gr great thumbnail way of describing that, and I say this a lot to parents, is that your job is to provide the what and the when of feeding. And the kid's part role is to determine how much and even if, if they take something, uh, you know, and, and really to cut back on the stress over it. They'll get it. I really agree with you completely too about the discussion on, you know, giving something multiple, multiple times. Neophobia, the fear of something new and the fear of the novelty of the new food is really important. And it takes kids a long, long time to get over that hump. You know, one of the things I think has been helpful too, Sandy, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I feel like the um, response from our allergists in that we should be exposing kids to more things has actually been helpful. It's been something like parents don't have as much fear and they're, they know that they're supposed to be trying different things that the kids can handle. And as you said, that you can feed with them responsibly. I think that's been a help also. You bet. And I think if parents think of the variety of foods um, that they're exposing their children to is like giving an artist a whole variety of paints to paint that beautiful picture with. They're giving them the capacity to really enjoy a whole variety of foods through their life course. And I think parents um, should be should be really supported and um, congratulated for, for really doing that and setting their kids up for a lifetime of really good eating. Yeah, I agree, I agree. You know, if you move to the other end of the age spectrum in pediatrics, uh, sometimes these picky eaters wind up having different problems later in life. And one of the other kids I wanted to ask you about was an older girl. She's an 11-year-old named Kaylin. 
um, and she is the chicken nugget queen, um, has always been extremely picky, and now her choices of foods are kind of catching up to her a bit. She's beginning to gain some weight because the only foods she really likes are some of the very calorie-dense foods, and as she starts approaching a more rapid growth phase, she starts getting more hungry, and she's continuing to just eat those very few foods in higher and higher quantities. You know, sometimes it's macaroni and cheese, sometimes it's chicken nuggets. I think, you know, in my era, we had those kids that would eat only hot dogs. Um, but, you know, it's those, those kids who have very few things in the repertoire. And so what happens is they wind up focusing on these uh, very high calorie foods and they're the only things that they'll eat. Um, I know you and I see a lot of kids like this over the years. What kind of strategies have you employed in that circumstance? So, un unfortunately, this is not an uncommon scenario um, with Kaylin. And eating in response to stress is, is common, and kids often turn to the comfort foods to make themselves feel better. Um, of course, this is only a temporary soothing strategy. It works temporarily, but if you use this as your strategy in an ongoing way, you, uh, the kids end up with their weight going up and, like Kaylin, fighting, over her parents, uh, fighting with her parents over her eating habits. Um, one of the, the things that I have actually asked uh, parents to do in the past with, with a 10-year-old is set up the family meal and, and with the principles that you outlined before so beautifully, the parents uh, provide the healthy food in the right portions, and then um, don't talk about food. And just let Kaylin um, enjoy whatever part of the meal she can, talk about the school day, talk with her about the things she's doing. Often families in this kind of predicament where they're worried about the child's eating um, and they, you find that they're talking about food incessantly. So sometimes we say mealtime, the food should be presented and uh, eaten, but not talked about. You talk about other things at that table. And that's one of the first things that can sort of de-escalate the situation uh, while they're trying to just calm everything down. I think her parents would welcome that approach. You know, I love some of the stuff that Sally Sampson does in this area. I, we're, we're huge fans of the magazine Chop Chop in our office. Um, it, it also feels like, you know, it's, it's this chance for kids to learn um, about food preparation. Um, it's a chance for them to be part of the preparation process. So they have a little bit more invested interest in it. Um, it just seems like a really great approach. Well, Chris, I think parents underestimate how interested kids are in food preparation. Um, kids love to help with food prep. Um, you can have the younger kids help when you go shopping, picking out fruits and vegetables. The, the older kids like to uh, uh, help with what uh, food prep and setting the table. And I think parents sometimes underestimate how, what, how attractive that is for a kid. You know, the, and the recipes in Chop Chop I was amazed. They're not kid recipes. I mean, these are mm -hmm. kids learning adult recipes with their parents' help or with their caregivers' help. I love that. I mean, it's, it's real recipes. So they're learning a little bit about knife safety and oven safety. Um, those are really important skills. You know, with regard to the preparation piece, the other thing that I think is really useful if you can get kids involved in it early on, Kaylin might be a little bit old for it, but getting them involved in the gardening process too mm -hmm. seems 
to make them really much more interested in trying things. And I think families are looking for activity ideas to do rather than screens. I mean, when they realize that they need to reduce their screen time, it's always nice to give, to talk over a couple of ideas of, well, what could you do on a Saturday if you're not watching the TV or, or the computer? And so family gardening is really um, a thing that many families enjoy and haven't thought of as an activity, a family activity they can do together. So. I, I've seen kids pull up a carrot and eat it uh, almost immediately before you could even wipe all the dirt off. They're so excited to pull up that carrot they grew um, and and uh, taste it. So uh, I think gardening, food prep, looking at recipes, things you can do together to make mealtime more fun, all, all of these go into uh, these family healthy habits that you want to get established. You know, you brought up an interesting point, too, about not talking about food. I think, you know, with Kaylin's family, one of the things that is maybe helpful for them is not having to worry about doing everything at once. Um, because of her very restrictive eating patterns, I've had some patients who we've had good success with just saying, okay, you love chicken nuggets. We know you love chicken nuggets. I've had some success with just moving them to grilled chicken breast. So, you know, even though they are still are eating way more chicken than I would want to eat, they are getting, um, getting it in a better and more healthy form. It's not breaded. It's not fried. So even if they're not getting a lot of variety, not a big deal. You know, I thought it was really interesting. I'm sure you remember the study that Rena Wing did several years ago in Rhode Island, where she looked at the healthy habits of people who had successfully lost a significant amount of weight and kept it off for more than six years, you know, they, they, they looked at the habits that these people had and they walked a lot and they never skipped meals. But one of the things that they did, which caught my attention was that they were not very adventurous at certain meal times. They ate mm -hmm. pretty much the same lunch every day. They had a healthy lunch and they ate it religiously, but there wasn't a lot of variety in there. I think sometimes we have this mindset that, oh, it's got to be, you know, this variety every single time. Well, some kids are not very accepting of that. And at least you can get their habits to be healthy foods. That's a win. Um, even if it's not, you know, like they're now eating 18 different things. If they're eating chicken in a more healthy way than they used to, I take that victory and move on. And, you know, Chris, it's, I, I, I think this is a really important point because it's always helpful to know where to start. You're not going to take Kaylin and get her into um, uh, vegetarian cooking the first time you try from a, a diet of chicken nuggets, but you're going to move her incrementally and you're going to watch how she responds. And when the parents serve other foods at dinner and you, they're going to watch, does she try the other foods? What's going on? Does she want, is she more comfortable with moving more slowly or a standardized meal? So, you know, I think it's important to realize that this is a very dynamic process when you try to shift somebody's healthy, uh, from unhealthy to healthy lifestyle behaviors. And you have to watch as it goes and see how people, how your kids respond to that as you kind of gently move them. Some kids will change, like you said, they'll change like a shot. And other kids take some time to make this shift. And I think substitutions are a great way to start. You know, Sandy, you made a comment, too, about 
the importance of good role modeling. I think that's a really big issue. You know, it, I cringe when I have families say, well, we're making her eat this, but then we have another skinny child and her father, and they're going to eat something separate. I mm-hmm. just, I really worry about that. Do you have strategies for families on that? Well, you know, I start out right out of the gate to say to families that this is a family um, solution to getting healthier. And saying it that way does a couple things. One is you take the, the, you take the burden off that child. If you say to the parents, well, you know, um, and usually this is true in the family history, there's, always, there's usually hypertension or diabetes or obesity and reasons for the whole family to be concerned about getting better nutrition. There's also reasons in their own dietary habits. So I start off by saying this is a family project. And when you talk to Kaylin and your children, you say the whole family's getting healthy. That's what we're going to do. That takes the heat off her. And it really uh, makes the parents focus on how they're eating and what they're modeling and how important it is. And, and we talk about how important it is. And fathers actually respond pretty well to realizing how important a role model they are for their kids. Mothers do too, but sometimes fathers are taken by surprise to understand that how important their eating and physical activity is to role modeling healthy uh, lifestyle for the kids. It's always amazing to me. You know, I, I just, when is lean protein and lots of fresh, fresh vegetables and fruit and water, that's good for everybody, whether, whatever your weight status is. And that's, you know, your comment about not talking about food, I think it's really good to take it out of this weight punishment, this weight stigma sort of zone and quit talking about weight. It's about health. It's about enjoying life. It's about being together as a family. Amen to that, Chris. It's really unfortunate how much weight bias and stigma exists out there. And I just, it breaks my heart to see it affecting our kids. Um, What do you, you know, with weight bias and stigma, I think it's so in our culture that sometimes you even see it in families. And so sometimes you actually have to help the family find language that, that is positive um, and not labeling their own child. Uh, and I think we all have to be aware that it's out there and most every kid who has a weight problem uh, or obesity experiences weight bias at some point. So I think it's good to remember that and to always be asking uh, about that when you see the kids and their families. Yep, I agree. I agree. You know, there's also some really good resources out there. I've been really happy of some of the things that have come out recently. Our our friend and colleague, Natalie Muth, uh, along with Sally Sampson, did that book last year called The Picky Eater Project which I think is a really nice addition to the literature. There's other good things out there. I think we mentioned LDL and Satter book. Um, what are some other ones that you've run across? Well, you know, for weight bias and teasing and bullying, our new policy statement at the AAP, I think, packages us up very nicely uh, in terms of the, the individual, the family, the practice, and, and even policy. Um, I think that the Institute has... Um, a lot of information on picky eating on our website, uh, a mini module on picky eating, um, some infographics, um, things practitioners can use on their own websites. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot out there to help parents navigate uh, this issue. 
you know, one of the authors on that uh, statement that you mentioned was Rebecca Fool, and she has a lot of great stuff on weight bias and weight stigma at her Yukon Rudd Center uh, website, too. That's another good one. Sandy, thanks so much for talking today. It seems like this has been a great issue to discuss. It just has so many aspects of being a pediatrician and being a parent um, and being a, you know, being a disciplinarian, but also having fun with your kids. Um, it really is a, a tough area for parents, um, but I'm really glad that there's some good resources out there. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting over this today with you. Me too, Chris. And it's always good to think more about how we can help our kids and families. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Chris about picky eating. It's clear that addressing picky eating in primary care is complicated and can sometimes be hard. Please remember to check out some of the resources at the Institute for Healthy Childhood Weights website and the Bright Futures website. Some of the ones that may be most relevant to this conversation include the CME modules on early feeding, and yes, there's even one on picky eating. Parent tested materials on picky eating, including infographics and videos in both English and Spanish. And Chop Chop Magazine, which is produced by the Chop Chop family, but every issue is reviewed and informed by Institute reviewers. These are just a few of my favorites, but be sure to check out both the Institute and Bright Teachers website for more. The views, information, resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.